Hello, I'm Lisa Dale Miller, and you are about to hear the first of two Dharma talks I delivered at Marin Sangha in June of 2014. Both of these talks were centered on the controversy that seems to be arising now between the Western Buddhist community and some of the principles in the mindfulness-based interventions community. Over the last few years, John Kabat-Zinn and others have been using a term, the universal dharma, to describe what is being delivered in an eight-week MBSR class. And John has also gone so far as to say that this universal dharma is an accurate presentation of what someone gets when they come to the Buddhist teachings and participate as a Buddhist practitioner in the Buddhist teachings. It seems that this universal dharma is being equated with the Buddha dharma now. Being someone who is steeped in both of these communities, I thought I might have something to offer to bring clarity to whether or not there is a universal dharma, and if so, if that universal dharma has anything to do with the actual Buddha dharma. So I hope you enjoy this talk, and I will return at the end of it. I'm going to tackle what appears to be a growing controversy in the mindfulness interventions community. Um, it's not that it's new, necessarily, but it does seem to be getting quite a lot of commentary. So I'm actually going to do two weeks on this general topic. But my purpose tonight um, is to maybe refute a notion that seems to be swirling around. For any of you who don't know, I straddle both sides of this controversy. I am a clinician. I am a supposed expert in Buddhist psychology. And I have the book to prove it. <laughs> right. I also train clinicians in mindfulness-based interventions. I'm a longtime MBSR teacher. I was on the initial training team to train clinicians in mindfulness-based relapse prevention. So I straddle that side, but I've been a Dharma practitioner for decades, and that's where I live. Okay, so the question is, is there such a thing as a universal dharma? And if so, does it have anything to do with the actual Buddha dharma, which are the teachings of the Buddha? So the earliest reference I could find of John using this term in print was in 2003, describing MBSR. But a more recent example from 2011, in an article uh, for Contemporary Buddhism was co-written with Mark Williams. He's a professor at Oxford and he's also a Dharma teacher and he's a longtime MBSR trainer. Uh, so they wrote, there's a paragraph from this article that they wrote that I think elucidates John's position very clearly. So here we go. Quote, For it is precisely from within the tension between the Buddha Dharma, with all its highly developed and diverse traditions and lineages, and what we might call a, quote, 
lived universal dharma, unquote, in an everyday idiom, that the potential for insight, healing, and transformation emerges. A transformation that can be seen day after day in those who come to mindfulness-based clinical programs seeking help with their suffering and who, through their cultivation of mindfulness and their implicit exposure to the Dharma, even if they have never heard the word, experience profound changes that continue to astonish and humble all involved." Unquote. So the premise of a universal Dharma appears to rest upon the belief that it is unnecessary to invoke or refer to the Buddha's teachings on suffering and liberation from suffering in order to convey the profound knowledge that underpins these teachings. According to Mark Williams and John Kabat-Zinn, the universal dharma facilitates help with suffering solely through the cultivation of a mindfulness that implicitly imparts the theory, meaning, and knowledge and the experience, the direct experience of the Buddha Dharma. Additionally, this universal Dharma purportedly leads to the same liberation of mind that comes from engagement with the actual Buddha Dharma. So, we are left to assume that the, quote, profound changes that continue to astonish and humble all involved, unquote, must arise from direct recognition of not-self, interdependent co-arising, and the direct experience of the clear-like nature of mind, what the Buddha referred to as suchness, the deathless, the, or the unconditioned. So this is what we're going to try to see whether or not MBSR does or doesn't do. So let's start by setting a standard for what is meant by the Buddha Dharma with a few quotes. First, from Nagarjuna. He was the second century founder of the Madhyamaka school of Buddhism, often thought of as the second Buddha. Realize that the nectar of the Buddha's teachings, which is beyond all notions of existence and non-existence, and which is called the profound, is our unique dharma inheritance. So that's a good distillation of what the Buddha Dharma is. Now, what is meant by the practice of the, of the Buddha Dharma, I have three quotes to illustrate what Buddhist teachings say is meant by practicing the Buddha Dharma. The first one's from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of sayings of the Buddha, the historical Buddha himself. Do no evil, engage in what is skillful, and purify your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Another quote, this one from Arya Deva, who was a third century author of many key Majjhimaka texts, and was the great disciple of Nagarjuna. So Arya Deva says, First, 
to arrest the non-meritorious. Next, to refute the self. Last, to dissipate all opinions. Master this, and you are a sage. And lastly, from the Dalai Lama. All the teachings of Buddhism can be reduced to two things. The practice of nonviolence and the philosophy of interdependence. Are we on the same page here? That sounds like the Buddha Dharma you guys know and practice. Yes? No? Yes. Yes. Nagarjuna's quote? It's not a great quote. Uh, for any of you who haven't read Nagarjuna, um, the translation of the precious garland with a commentary by the Dalai Lama at the back is fantastic. Okay. Realize that the nectar of the Buddha's teaching, which is beyond all notions of existence and non-existence, and which is called the profound, is our unique Dharma inheritance. So Nagarjuna is saying, if it's the Buddha Dharma, you are going to be pointing at, there is no existence, there is no non-existence, no eternalism, no nihilism, there is no existence and non-existence. You're going to be pointing at emptiness. So together these quotes define Dharma as, ethical conduct, purification of mind, and the realization of emptiness, the interdependent co-arising and inherent insubstantiality of all phenomena, including the self, which ceases all elaboration and all forms of suffering. When you realize emptiness, suffering ceases. That's the key. In the Buddha Dharma, that is the key. So this is the bar we are setting for the universal dharma to meet. We have just set the conditions. If you want to be a universal dharma, this is where you have to go. So now I'm going to very quickly lay out the current arguments for and against the validity of a universal dharma, most of which revolve around the secular mindfulness community's view that mindfulness meditation sufficiently represents and fully imparts the fundamental truths and practices of the Buddha's teachings. Now, if that were true, it would effectively reduce the Buddha's eightfold path to one limb, a right mindfulness that includes and imbues all the qualities and lessons of the other seven limbs. That's a tall order, isn't it? So here are both sides of the argument. And by the way, a side note, the Buddha did not teach a religion. The Buddha was a philosopher. He was a, our first cognitive scientist, as far as I can tell. He was only interested in suffering, the nature of suffering, and the end of suffering. That's it. He consistently throughout the suttas, refused to answer any esoteric questions. He just wouldn't do it. He was like, go see the Hindu Brahmins for that. You want to know about the afterlife? You want to know about Atman? That's, I'm not doing that. So to me, the Buddhist teachings, as the Buddha taught them, they're secular. Buddhism is a religion that came afterwards. 
Okay, so here's the argument for the universal dharma. Mindfulness-based interventions, particularly MBSR, adhere to fundamental elements of right mindfulness because they include practices that lead to insight into the roots of suffering and impart implicit ethical standards. Mindfulness-based interventions do contain the initial aspects of right mindfulness, such as bare attention, awareness of the interpretive process of experience, so the mind's narrative tendencies, and cultivating serenity and insight. And I'm going to prove it to you by reading right out of Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on the Eightfold Noble Path. And for any of you who are interested in really learning about the uh, Fourth Noble Truth, the Eightfold Noble Path. This is the book for you. It's called The Noble Eightfold Path, Way to End Suffering by Bhikkhu Bodhi. I can't say enough. It really distills the uh, teaching. So Samasati is right mindfulness. So I'm going to read this right out of his book. Mindfulness is presence of mind, attentiveness, or awareness. All consciousness involves awareness in the sense of a knowing or experiencing of an object. But with the practice of mindfulness, awareness is applied at a special pitch. The mind is deliberately kept at the level of bare attention, a detached observation of what is happening within us and around us in the present moment. In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and drop. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. Let's see. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. Not thinking, not judging, not associating, not planning, not imagining, not wishing. Now, that is the way they teach mindfulness in MBSR. That's it. That's the crux of it. When you do MBSR, that's what you are learning to do. That's the Dharma, right here. Okay, so on point number one, okay. I'll agree. Point number two, MBSR practices are based on the four foundations of mindfulness. Well, let's actually look at this now. So the first practice they give out is the body scan. Well, body scan is actually based on yoga nidra. So this is a yogic practice of moving awareness through the body. It's not based on the 32 parts of the body, which is the Buddhist lying-down practice, which according to Nyapanika Tara, quote, aims at and results in effortless alienation from attachment and shows the body's true nature, unquote. And what is the body's true nature? Empty of any inherent self-existence, impermanent, putrid, and decaying. Okay, this is the Buddhist practice. Now, I don't think I've ever been trained to teach body scan that way. And I have never heard any mindfulness-based instructor 
tell people to find the putrid, impermanent nature of their body and recognize the decaying of their body. Mindfulness of breath meditation is the second practice they give, and that certainly is included in the first foundation of mindfulness. So we will get back to them. The second foundation of mindfulness is the feeling tone of experience, or otherwise known as Vedana, our favorite, right? How experience feels to us and what it causes us to actually do consciously or unconsciously in our likes and dislikes, yeah? our craving, aversion. This topic is touched on only tangentially in any of the MBIs. And it's usually through the discussion of physical, emotional, or mental pain. But never directly. Certainly not by any teacher or therapist who has no knowledge of the Buddhist teachings. The whole idea of craving and aversion being the underpinning of ignorance in the mind, that is never discussed. So I don't think I can say that MBSR or any MBIs actually offer the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is not included at all. It's never mentioned. So there's no effort to find the mind itself. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind itself. And there's no effort in any of the mindfulness-based interventions to find a self either. Go find a self. Go see if you can find one. There, there is none of that, really. That's part of the reason why I wrote my textbook, to bring the dharma back to this, <laughs> to teach the actual dharma to clinicians. Cessation of suffering in the dharmic sense can never be achieved if the fundamental delusion of dualistic self-identity remains intact. And it does in all of the mindfulness-based interventions. I don't care what kind of mindfulness-based intervention it is. Uh, yoga always, or qigong, either one, usually taught in any eight-week mindfulness-based group. Uh, there's none of that in Buddhist philosophy, and certainly not in the four foundations of mindfulness. Loving-kindness meditation, which is sometimes taught. It's not really standardized. Some people do, some people don't. Um, it's not in the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the contents of mind, is discussed in MBSR, but only in the context of the hindrances as they might arise in your practice. The seven factors of enlightenment are never discussed. So the fourth factor of mindfulness, the contents of mind, you, you essentially are looking for these two things. And as somebody who follows the Buddha Dharma, you're not just looking at the hindrances in your meditation practice, you're looking at how they come up in your entire life because your mind is always with you in your entire life. So the five hindrances are always going to arise in your daily activities. So I don't know. You can draw your own conclusion as to whether or not MBSR practices are actually based on the four foundations of mindfulness. Now the third point that I would like to talk about is John Kabat-Zinn states very clearly, and I have heard other big trainers of mindfulness-based stress reduction and other eight-week interventions, I have heard them say this, so it's not just him. 
Personal and professional ethical guidelines are intrinsic to the delivery of mindfulness-based programs. So MBSR teachers impart ethics through their conduct. But more importantly, ethics is implicit in the practice of right mindfulness when it is used in the pursuit of discernment between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind and as a support for wholesome speech, thoughts, and action. So that's what they say. We, we don't talk about ethics out there, like outright. We'll teach this stuff to anybody. We don't care what they're doing in their life. And we will not tell them to change their life because mindfulness has ethics implicit in it. If they learn mindfulness, they're going to be more ethical. This is what they say. Um, so supposedly, an MBSR teacher works on themselves enough to impart discernment skills through their thought, words, and deeds. In fact, a recent article from 2013 cited one study as sufficient evidence of implicit ethical delivery of ethics in mindfulness. And the study was by Shauna Shapiro from 2012. And that study reported increases in moral reasoning at the two-month follow-up. But of course, they use self-report questionnaires, a highly unreliable method of measurement. Right? So, right. I don't think there's sufficient evidence. And I haven't, frankly, seen any other evidence. So again, you can draw your own conclusions about that point. So now, what we're going to do is, I'm actually going to read some of the textual material for you from the Theravada and the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism to find out what is the Buddha Dharma and whether universal Dharma has anything to do with it. So first of all, what is right mindfulness? Okay, let's go right to the Samyutta Nikaya. So right mindfulness is the seventh of the eight limbs of the Eightfold Path. What comes before it? Let's see, what comes before it? Well, it starts with right view. So you start where you're supposed to end up, which is always interesting. But I have something that proves why the Buddha does that in a little bit. And then you go through ethics. You have to go through all of your ethical conduct. And then you finally end up at right mindfulness and right concentration. They're the last two. So here's the Buddha directly. And what monks is right mindfulness? Here, monks, one dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. Now, I don't ever remember offering that instruction to anyone in any of my mindfulness-based groups. He dwells contemplating feelings and feelings, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. He dwells contemplating mind in mind, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. He dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed longing and dejection in regard to the world. This is called right mindfulness. 
There's nothing about removing longing and dejection with regard to the world in any mindfulness-based class that I know of. Unless I'm teaching it wrong. In fact, I was hard-pressed to find much evidence in the suttas for a dharma based solely on the practice of right mindfulness. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha clearly elucidated a specific path to cut through the roots of suffering and achieve full liberation of mind. We could agree right mindfulness is one part of the Eightfold Method. And we could also agree that MBSR and other MBIs seem to have some therapeutic efficacy for the alleviation of distress and stress. But alleviation of stress and distress is a limited, relative goal of Buddhist practice. The ultimate goal of the Buddha Dharma is awakening to one's true nature, suchness, the deathless, the clear light nature of mind. That ultimate goal is never mentioned in any MBI, as far as I know. Okay, what about implicit ethics in right mindfulness? Let's tackle that one, because that's a big one. That is, that is a very big claim. And there's a lot of turmoil around this now, because mindfulness-based interventions are being offered in corporations in service of keeping their employees working 12-hour days. It's being offered in other contexts, and we'll talk more about this next week, probably. But for right now, let's just stay with the teachings and trying to suss all of this out. Sila, virtue, ethical conduct, a huge part of the Buddha Dharma. I'm just going to give you a flavor of what virtue is in the Buddha Dharma. I love this quote. This is from Acharya Dhammapala. Esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements, as the soil for the origination of all the Buddha qualities, the beginning, footing, head, and chief of all the qualities issuing in Buddhahood, one should guard diligently and thoroughly the perfection of virtue as a hen guards its eggs. So virtue is critical. And there are three levels of virtue. Uh, this isn't taught very much, actually. I, I hadn't heard this. You know me, I'm a research geek, so I find these things, and I think, how come nobody taught me this thing? So there's actually three levels of virtue. Who knew? The first one is hatima sila, which are the three bodily acts, not killing, not stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct, and four kinds of speech, not lying, not speaking divisively, not saying anything coarse or abusive, and not speaking idly. So that's the first layer of virtue. I mean, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it's the precepts. Like, and that's asking a lot of somebody. The second <laughs> layer of virtue is majima sila, and this is keeping watch over your words and your deeds so that they cause no harm. And in addition, keeping watch over your thoughts so as to keep your mental karma upright by not coveting wealth or possessions 
And finally, abandoning thoughts of greed, hatred, and delusion, wrong views, and mental darkness. Third level of sila is uparima sila, which actually is about abandoning the five hindrances, longing, hatred, sloth, restlessness, and doubt. And it is true that this is often taught even in the Buddhist vehicle for your meditation practice. This is what keeps you practicing when you don't want to practice. But it also extends to your daily life and your behavior. So I don't know. I mean, I, I have never... I have never taught any kind of mindfulness-based intervention where I've asked people to adhere to the precepts. I don't know any MBSR teachers or any mindfulness-based psychotherapist. I, I don't know anybody who does that. I will give the mindfulness-based community one thing. In the West, Buddhism, frankly, has been taught devoid of the ethics. So people think Buddhism is meditation. They think they can go on a retreat and meditate and, you know, they're Buddhists. Ethics is not really stressed here in the West, even in Buddhist schools here. So I will give them the fact that it appears as though ethics is actually implicit in the meditation practice, but it's not. And to prove that point, I am going to rely upon Shantideva, who wrote the Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life, one of the greatest Madhyamaka texts of all time. In fact, he has an entire chapter on vigilant mindfulness. That's how important vigilant mindfulness was to Shantideva. And there's 76 verses in this chapter. And the third verse almost makes the case for the MBSR stance about ethics. If the elephant of the mind is completely restrained by the rope of mindfulness, then all perils vanish and complete well-being is obtained. Okay, now if I just stop there, I might actually think, all right, if I practice this vigilant mindfulness, it's going to take care of everything and I will have well-being forever if I stopped there. But he didn't stop there. <laughs> when we get to verse 48, Shantideva is now in the thick of telling you what he means by vigilant mindfulness. When one sees one's own mind to be attached or repulsed, then one should neither act nor speak, but remain still like a piece of wood. When my mind is haughty, sarcastic, full of conceit, and arrogance, ridiculing, evasive, and deceitful, when it is inclined to boast, or when it is contemptuous of others, abusive and irritable, then I should remain still like a piece of wood. When my mind seeks material gain, honor, and fame, or when it seeks attendance and service, then I will remain still, like a piece of wood. When my mind is averse to the interest of others and seeks my own self-interest, or when it wishes to speak out of a desire for an audience, then I will remain still, like a piece of wood. 
resolute, confident, steadfast, respectful and courteous, modest, meek, calm, devoted to pleasing others, undistressed by the mutually incompatible desires of foolish people, endowed with compassion, knowing that they are like this as a consequence of the arising of their mental afflictions, always resorting to irreproachable things for the sake of myself and others, I will maintain my mind free of pride. That's vigilant mindfulness. And what Shanti David is pointing to here is the fact that the mindfulness doesn't imbue that. Mindfulness is a tool through which we are able to apply our ethical standards. The things we have committed to, we are able to use mindfulness to see when our suffering is arising and to adhere to ethical conduct and right mindfulness and right concentration and right intention and right effort and all the rest of it and right view, most importantly, to alleviate our suffering. This is from The Precious Garland, the text that I mentioned that Nagarjuna wrote. To be generous is to give up one's wealth. Okay, well, you tell that to all of the people who are out there doing mindfulness classes in order to make more money and be better at being a stock trader and be successful, you know, Ariana Huffington's thing. You tell that to them. To be moral is to endeavor to help others. You tell that to all the people who are doing mindfulness-based classes so that they can feel better. Not so anybody else can feel better, so they can feel better. Tolerance is the abandonment of anger. Effort is enthusiasm for virtue. Concentration is unafflicted one-pointedness. Wisdom is definitely determining the truth's meaning. Loving kindness is a state of mind that savors only compassion for all beings. From generosity comes wealth, happiness from morality, from tolerance comes beauty, splendor from effort. Through meditation, one is peaceful. That's all meditation does. <laughs> Through meditation, one is peaceful. Through understanding comes liberation. And I submit to you, the Eightfold Path is there for a reason. You can meditate all you want, but if you don't understand <laughs> what is arising in your meditation, you will never be liberated. And one last nail in the coffin, I hope, from the Buddha, who gets the last word on these, he was approached by the venerable Bahia, who always has the greatest questions for the Buddha. Can I just say, that guy really had it together. And he, the, he said, Venerable sir, it would be good if you could teach me the Dhamma in brief. I love this. <laughs> I want the cliff notes of the Dhamma. You know, okay, so you would think this is like perfect for MBSR, right? And all the mindfulness-based interventions. You know, give me something I can have quickly. And what did the Buddha say to him? Well then, Bahia, purify the very starting point of wholesome states. 
And what is the starting point of wholesome states? Virtue that is well purified and view that is straight. Then, Bahia, when your virtue is well purified and your view is straight, based upon virtue, established upon virtue, you should then develop the four establishments of mindfulness. And I rest my case. <laughs> this is Lisa again. At this point, Marin Sangha has a new tradition of breaking up into small groups and having 10 minutes of discussion. So I just offered them an open-ended question of, do you, what do you think? Is there universal dharma? Does it have anything to do with the Buddha dharma as you know it? And 10 minutes of very lively discussion ensued. When we reconvened, there really wasn't any more time for open discussion, so I decided to just quickly take a poll. It seemed that the majority of Sangha members thought that universal dharma was some kind of Buddhism light, meaning L-I-T-E. There were a few that thought they really didn't have anything to do with each other, and then there was at least one person who was straddling both sides and saying yes and no, they could make a case for either one. I found this fascinating. My intention was not to portray mindfulness-based interventions as Buddhism light, and yet it seems that's what happened anyway. And maybe that's part of the larger general problem. So I hope that you enjoyed this, and I invite you to listen to part two.